You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we're discussing The Loving Push, Chapter 7. And this will be our final episode, so we'll be kind of wrapping it up and going over what we learned from this book and how we're going to use this information moving forward in speech therapy. So this episode is called Teaching Vital Life Skills Needed for Success. And this is kind of wrapping up the whole book and letting parents know these are the four areas that you really need to teach to your kids before you send them out into the world. So it starts out just talking about how some kids on the spectrum who have significant limitations might need modified environments that recognize the limitations while also maximizing abilities. They can still lead successful lives, even if they have to remain at home or live in supervised residences. So there are some kids who you're not going to be comfortable just sending them out to be completely independent, and that's okay as long as you're still pushing them to live up to their potential. And then we have our other kids who are capable of mastering enough skills to live independently. You need to think about, for kids on the spectrum, the ultimate achievement is just that they're not solely consumers but are able to give back. And that doesn't necessarily just mean through employment. It's being a supportive friend, a member of a community organization, volunteering, and just being connected to the world outside themselves. So this loving push is all about pushing your kids to be more social, get out, you know, not stay isolated and not just stay in their room kind of closed off from the world. They warn, though, that if teens head into adulthood unprepared, they are vulnerable to a crisis. And if they hit a wall, if they come up against a big obstacle, they might just come to a full stop and retreat. So you need to set them up for success. And the four sets of skills that all teens must learn are in the areas of domestic life and household chores, getting around independently, whether that's driving or using public transportation, educational and vocational preparation, and social and community connection. So we're going to go through these one by one and uh, hit a few points in each area. All right, so for domestic life and household chores, they say to start young. They have a few stories of some of our friends that we've met throughout this book. Marina's mom made her do chores, didn't let her siblings help, and told her that she really needed to learn to do things properly, things like holding utensils, She really pushed Marina and told her, these are things that are expected of you. You can do it. You're capable of doing it. And no one really cares (laughs) about how you want to do it, which can sound a little bit harsh, but that's our world that we live in. You know, I think I don't want to be harsh, Adrian, but I do think sometimes kids are coddled now, even young adults that I (laughs) encounter, uh, not in speech therapy, just in our world, have this um, opinion that they should always be comfortable. But that's not the world we live in. I'm not always comfortable. I have to do things I don't like to do. But you have to face them. Yeah. I hate talking on the phone. Oh, God. It's, it's something I hate. But I have to do it. During the pandemic, I really had to face that fear and call parents, just <clears throat> blindly calling parents. And that was 
torturous for me because I have always since I was a kid, you know, there are things that make you uncomfortable. But if they're expected of you and you're capable of doing them, you got to do them. That's so millennial of you to hate talking on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have done some reading just in general about like resilience and grit. And I think that discomfort is one of those things that helps people to grow and helps us to persevere and be more resilient. So I don't know, especially because they reiterate throughout the book over and over and over that kids on the spectrum are not really going to be self-starters. They don't really have that motivation that a neurotypical teen has. So they do need the push. So I would just think like if it's normal for teens to kind of like not want to do a lot of this stuff anyway, then you would step up another level because these kids also are on the spectrum. And so as a parent, you kind of need to do a little more heavy lifting. Yeah. And then we have Cosette's mom who, when she was talking about, you know, making Cosette do chores and things like that around the house, she just said, we knew the fights were worth it. And I think sometimes people give up when they're pushing because of the pushback that they get from their kids. But in the long run, it's worth it. We've said that a million times reading this book. It's like you do the hard thing now and then it gets easier in the long run. And at this point, Cosette is going to move into a duplex. Her mom will be in one house and she'll be in the other and she's going to be with a roommate who's someone she knows from church. So she's living semi-independently. She still has that support, but she's just getting started. She's really young. I think she's 18 Mm, Yeah. at the time this book was written. Cosette, I hope you're doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then Scott's mom gave a story of how they always had no screen Saturdays, which is pretty wild. Like a Saturday is a day you'd think that parents would go a little easy and let them... be on their screens or I guess yeah family but time. this was family time they had <laughs> dinner together they did chores they they always got to make dessert that day and then they had a family game night and I can't remember if this is where she said it but she said games were really important because he had a hard time with losing and she knew that this was a skill he needed to learn so they worked on playing games and losing graciously They just say, make the approach fit with what kids on the spectrum really need. They learn best by specific detailed instruction followed by repeated practice. So break tasks down, tell them the rules, write down the steps if you need to, post them in the area where they're doing them, and then they can be successful. And Temple tells a story of when she was working at a dairy farm and she was in charge of setting up the milk equipment milking the cows, and then cleaning up. And she really needed to do everything sort of to perfection because if she messed up one step, she could contaminate a whole giant thing of milk. Mm. So, you know, she just, she got those steps broken down and was able to be successful because she knew everything that she needed to do. I mean, I was like, wow, when they went over Temple's work history, were you thinking about like, she was really quite a busy gal. I don't know if it was just cultural difference. Oh, we're going to get to the work. Oh, we're not in it yet. Because the milk, I was like, okay. I mean, it seems like a lot for a team. (laughs) But then when we get further into like what she was doing, I was just like, wow, Temple, you know. I mean, this book has just opened my eyes to the world of Temple Grandin. It seems like she has lived 50 lives and she is just so bold. But you know, she is... She is older because I Googled it and she's 75, I think. So, you know, she has lived quite a lot of life. But I mean, yeah, I learned a lot from this book for sure. Yeah. 
So the next core area that these kids need to learn is how to get around, whether that's going to be driving or using public transportation. And we sort of went into this in the last episode when, Adrian, you were talking about that student you had who was getting her driver's license. Driving is not simply a matter of intelligence. It requires cognitive and motor skills. You need memory, attention, flexibility, and reflexes in order to drive safely. Some teens will have impairments that make getting a license not a good idea. And parents, you know your kid and you probably have a good idea as to whether this would be appropriate for your child. Some just need more time and may need to wait even until their 20s to get a license. Maybe they won't be ready maturity-wise in their teens. So you start by addressing their fears. Is it the newness of it, the novelty? Is it the fear of making mistakes or the unpredictability that comes with driving? Do they just prefer being dependent on their parents? You can have a conversation and work through these fears one by one so that you can get started if having a driver's license is important to you or to your teen. They need a loving push plus a ton of practice, more than you might give a neurotypical teen in order to be successful. They share a story of Patrick getting his driver's license. He went through months of counseling to discuss all of his concerns. And Patrick is our guy who can get into some negative patterns of thinking. So some of his concerns involved his disdain for other drivers. Like if somebody, I forget if they cut him off or... I, oh. You know, if somebody did something on the road, he thought that it was that person's Personal. mission to destroy his day. He also had fear of the unfamiliar and of making mistakes. And then, of course, our savior, Aunt Mary, flies in and teaches him driving skills, how to shift his attitude, how to be more flexible and cope with unexpected situations. And I think she did a lot of the behind the wheel training with him. Yeah. And Patrick does drive. Go Patrick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do say that teens on the spectrum once they start driving are generally safe drivers. Once they learn the rules, they follow them carefully and consistently. They don't like to speed. They don't like to take risks. They don't drive in groups of cars with other teens, which can be really unsafe. And they're less likely to call or text while driving. Temple shares a story of when she learned to drive out at her aunt's ranch, she would have to drive this like old pickup with a stick shift that was really touchy, it sounds like, to the mailbox. And I forget... She calculated how far she drove over that summer, but she had to do it every day, six miles, oh, yeah. I think. And uh, and by yeah, the yeah. end of the summer, she knew how to drive. Just another fact about Temple. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they say that if your child has an IEP and you want them to get a license, driver's training should be included in the IEP. Because driver's training needs to be specially adapted for them. They need explicit instructions for things that neurotypical teens might be able to infer. And if possible, get a private driving coach or some other adult that can train your child. And really important is to go through every hypothetical scenario you can possibly think of. Just what if this happens? What if this happens? You really need your kid to be prepared. For instance, if they're pulled over by a police officer. As soon as I read this, I was like, wouldn't it be best for your kid to just immediately say, I have autism (laughs) the second the police officer, you know? And then they did suggest that you have a written card, a laminated card that your child can hand to them explaining that they're autistic. And uh, I thought that that was a great idea. Do a lot 
of role playing because you need to prepare them for things like a police officer might shine a bright flashlight in or have those flashing lights that could be total sensory overload. And, you know, you need to be ready for that. If they're not ready to drive, you're going to want to teach your child how to use public transit. Here, the same rules apply to teaching driving. You need to break things down step by step. So they share the story of Cosette and her mom. When she was going to community college, she wasn't ready to drive yet. So her mom rode the bus with her for an entire week leading up to her first day, taught her how to signal to the driver and when her stop was coming up and, you know, just really broke down every little thing that she needed to do. And Cosette is now able to go to the library, to friends' houses, to the mall, anywhere she needs to go, she's able to do it by herself using public transportation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a really good example of Cosette's mom taking the time to really put in the work with her so that she could be independent. I don't know if she works or what she had to do to make sure she could take that time with her, but it sounds like it paid off. Yeah. So then the next area they go into is educational and vocational preparation. When you're either sending your kid on to college or into the workforce, you need to remember how overwhelming these environments can be for those with autism. So when you consider all the possibilities for sensory overload, that can help you build a foundation for good, realistic planning. They're talking about the transition from high school onto whatever program the child goes into, but they also make a comment that many high-functioning students who would need intensive educational assistance might not have an IEP because testing will show average intelligence, so they won't have an IEP or special education classes or even accommodations if they need them. So I think their point was that you really need to advocate for your kid and get those accommodations in place if you know that they need them. And then they go through Project Search, which, Adrian, were you familiar with this? No, and actually, I thought it would have been such a great tool for a lot of people on the high school special ed IEP teams. Like, I had never heard of it, but it sounded amazing. Yeah. So this was a model transition program that has been used to help youth with autism spectrum disorder gain competitive employment. It identifies job skills, strengths, preferences, and interests. It teaches how to communicate with supervisors and coworkers. So this is a It's a model for all the areas that need to be addressed, right, as you're transitioning. Yeah. How to dress and behave professionally, how to communicate with customers, practicing specific work skills, accepting correction, that's a big one, asking for and taking a break, calling in sick or late, requesting time off, preparing a resume, and attending a job interview. Yeah, I think maybe the most that I've heard about for vocational kind of stuff at the transition, you know, 16 years or so was definitely doing like quizzes or taking surveys that would kind of show you what vocations would be good options for you. I know that there was some on the job training that would happen in the transition program after high school. But I mean, these are skills that are so essential. And I don't know who's picking up the ball right now if that program isn't already in place. I think you would assume it's the case manager. It's like, or is it speech? You know, it's kind of hard unless it's explicitly stated who's going to be covering those things. Yeah. Sometimes speech feels like the catch-all. Like we end up covering all these areas that aren't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be our responsibility, but 
you just you see the need and you take over. Right. But yeah, they say that you might and they're talking to the parents have to educate the school or the teachers. So if you are a parent who has a child that is going to be transitioning maybe into the workplace, I would do research on this project search so that you can be addressing all of these areas and making sure that the IEP team is helping to address these. Oh, so then they told kind of a story about that need for advocacy from parents sometimes when the school is not providing what you think that they need. They told a story of a mom who had a teacher at one point tell her, you know, we all want our kids to be white collar employees, but some are just meant to be blue collar employees, which like, yikes. the things people say, this is the same as the pediatricians <laughs> telling moms, your kid's going to be in and out of prison as if that's something anybody can predict. But then she did say that at one meeting, eventually she fought so hard, she like got really emotional and she apologized to an administrator. And the administrator told her, don't ever apologize for being your child's advocate. I wish there were more parents like you. And this, I had almost the exact same experience, but it was with a preschooler. Really? Yeah. There was a year where we had a a preschool special ed class that got filled way past capacity. So it was a class with two aides and the classroom had, I think at one point over 20 kids who had really significant needs. And this kid had ataxia and he loved to be out of his wheelchair playing on the equipment at recess, mm. but he had to be wheelchair bound all recess because they didn't have mm. the support that he needed. And his mom, she really stood up to our administrator and told him how unfair it was. He was having to spend recess like that. It was so, like, I'm getting very emotional thinking about it because afterwards the teacher was crying, the Mom was apologizing. She was like, I shouldn't have done that. And the teacher mm. said these exact words. She said, do not ever mm. apologize for fighting for what your kid needs. And like, I don't know. It's just, sorry, I'm getting very emotional. <laughs> well, I loved that story. Yeah. I was like, wow, you know, sometimes just getting confirmation like that can be so affirming. And I wish I saw more parents advocating hard for their kids. They should be. Well, yeah. And especially when you can tell it's coming only from this place of love, what you know your kid can be doing and should be doing, what's fair. You know, sometimes parents just seem like they're fighting just to fight. And sometimes they're fighting because it's really needed. And yeah. those are the moments that just kill you when you feel like you can't help. So you might have to request to change classes or teachers. Don't just coddle your child if they are complaining because they don't <laughs> like a teacher or a teacher's too strict if they don't click. Because especially this made me think in the workplace, you're not always going to love the people you work with, your bosses. So you do have to learn to deal with yeah. some personalities that maybe rub you the wrong way. But if you can find teachers who care, are creative, and inspire your child. Mm. They said that college might end up being easier than high school for some of these kids. Sarah shared a story about how she really struggled because she didn't have a diagnosis when she was young. She didn't understand the challenges she was having. Yeah. And she didn't really even want to keep going to school. But then she eventually persisted because of great teachers that she had at the college level. Scott says that he had an easier time in college because he went to a small religious college with bad sports teams and few jocks, which is interesting because they say jocks just always pick on kids with autism, which is 
horrendous. Yeah, yeah. At, at his school, the professors were more readily available to help students, worked well with the disability office, and took into consideration the unique challenges of each student. So sometimes it's really about finding the right fit for your kid. Cosette said she really likes college because the other students actually care. And she said maybe that's because it costs money. So they're engaged. They're engaging in conversation and they're taking the time to read and learn. And she also said she loves it because she doesn't have to get up early. So, you know, some kids may be resistant to even trying college because they think it's just going to be more of the same and they didn't like high school. But you should push them to give it a chance because they might realize that it's different and they do like it. Yeah, at least give it a try. Parents need to think about a job for their child while their child is young, not at the very end of high school or after they've already graduated. By middle school, you should have an idea of the way your child thinks and what type of work they'll be best suited for. Encourage them to find activities that match their interests and expose them to new experiences. And I think speech therapists could be doing a lot of this too. You know, even in middle school, talking to kids about job, you know, uh, different types of jobs that they could eventually have. Right. And then they have a little section where Dr. Mark Klinger from University of Alabama's college and transition support program goes over characteristics that he's seen that lead to the most success for people on the spectrum when they do go to college. He says the more prepared the student was to handle basic everyday skills, the better they did. Things like household chores, self-care. He said that when parents and professionals focus only on social skills, it could be a problem because social skills are good, but there are more important interventions that could be more helpful. Focus on skills that are related to independence and being able to manage the basics of daily life. Because without them, they could end up in their dorm rooms, playing video games, quit going to classes, and end up failing. So he has four recommendations. First, get kids to do household and personal care tasks on their own. Two, get them used to having and using an independent organizational aid. So something that could prompt them to get things done and show up, like a planner using their smartphone, their computer, Google Calendar. Third, he said to teach them to know how to ask for help. That since social initiation is hard, they need to learn how to self-advocate. If they get behind in a class, they could become embarrassed to ask for help and then just stop going to the class. And then the last one, he says, is to make sure their mood is stable. So if they do have any untreated depression or anxiety, those are highly linked to unsuccessful outcomes after high school. So get in the habit, if they do need to be on medication or something like that, which we talked about two chapters ago, get in the habit of taking those medications and refilling them and all of those things on their own, not just with your prompting. Right. The authors say that you just need to expose kids to practical trades as much as possible possible because those programs aren't available in high school anymore. So help them find part-time jobs around their neighborhood, like mowing lawns, anything that can get them to gain confidence and skills and have better social competence. And here is where we go through Temple's job history. Temple, (laughs) such a worker. So let me just list these off because Temple... She really lists anything that gave her the skills to work a job. She includes hosting those parties at her parents' house as her first job. And then um, she helped a neighbor who was a seamstress. She painted a sign for a woman who owned a 
beauty shop. She waited tables, cleaned horse stalls, and took guests on trail rides at her aunt's ranch. She worked in a lab during college. She worked as a helper with autistic kids doing recreational activities. She was a cattle chute operator. She painted more signs like for the Himalayan monster exhibit. In Arizona, I think. Love that. She wrote (laughs) and became an editor for the Arizona Farmer Rancher, (laughs) a publication. (laughs) And I mean, the list went on and on. It was, I didn't even know that she had all of these artistic abilities to paint these signs. Was that something you knew about her before? I didn't know. They have that picture in the book of her in front of the sign and it was great. I loved it. Yeah. It looked like something you'd see in a movie. It was It was good. Give your child experiences that are similar to working. There was one mom of an anonymous kid who said that she homeschooled her daughter and worked on practical skills. So she had her daughter sit at a desk with her while she worked. She explained everything she did. She had her daughter do it too. Like if she made copies, her daughter would make copies of her homework or whatever. Yeah. She took her everywhere and had her interact with clients. She treated her like an assistant. And then her daughter ended up starting a dog walk business in high school and then getting a flower arranging apprenticeship because her mom noticed how great she was at arranging flowers, which I struggle with that. I cannot arrange a bouquet to save my life. So (laughs) I could see someone being like, wow, you and, you know, kids with autism, I don't know if you've experienced this. They're often so great at pairing colors together. So I can just imagine that brain seeing a a bunch of flowers and being able to arrange them so beautifully. But that turned into a job that lasted 10 years until that flower arranging business was sold. Then her mom made business cards for her that said she was self-employed as a flower arranger and using those that confidence she had from telling people that she was self-employed, she ended up getting hired by a big chain and she just supplements her income with her self-employment. And then we have Cosette's mom, who I love the story of Cosette because she's really artistic. And her mom was always, always searching, her and her mom, for opportunities Mm. to sell her art. She ended up making $110 in a day just selling, drawing pictures for kids at this corn, the corn festival. She researched using social media to post her drawings, which she was doing on Tumblr. And then she got into Etsy, selling her art on Etsy. She's gone to Comic-Con before and drawn pictures of characters people want for money. Anime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anime. And there she, you know, socialized, got a bunch of support from other vendors. I liked the details. I thought it was amazing. But really what my big takeaway was, was, wow, this mom really knows her daughter And she kept giving her lots of opportunities, which is what this book is all about. So here, try an Etsy store. Here, let's go to this convention together. Let's get a booth. Instead of her mom thinking, oh, I don't know if she'll be able to do that or that might be overwhelming or not wanting to put forth the effort. She just, you know, was like, great idea. Let's go for it. And what an amazing way to build confidence. Oh, yeah. These are things that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. You're really putting yourself out there. But Because Cosette's passion is art and drawing, it's an area where she probably feels really confident talking to people about her drawing, you know? So she's able to engage with people socially, and it's just been really successful, it seems like. And yeah, I love how her mom just keeps pushing and finding things, and yeah, it's just amazing. These families and 
these people. So our last area of these four areas they say we really need to have our kids prepared in is social and community connection. So having parents who advocate for social participation is one of the primary determinants of how successful it will be. So just the push is what these kids need. The right. Many teens on the spectrum aren't going to reach out to others, which would limit them a lot. And others might avoid or pull back when their peers make advances. So parents really have to push into more active roles in social settings. Marina spoke about how she was really isolated in childhood. And she recognizes, even as an adult, that even though she likes being alone the best, it can lead to depression and heightened anxiety. So she has now taken over pushing herself to get out more. They say damaged interactions with peers begin very early. So we see this even with our preschool kids. Parents and sensitive teachers need to step in at an early age to help. Find nurturing peers as helpmates. I've heard this a million times, usually like sweet girls in the class who enjoy mothering, that mothering role. Parents can invite one other child over for structured play in your house. Cosette says she used to draw pictures for classmates and that got her a little bit of popularity. And then she had a teacher in sixth grade who really understood her and explained autism to all of her classmates. And then she felt like she had classmates who supported her, had her back, were on her side. So, you know, it's really the adults needing to step up sometimes and help out. Kids on the spectrum need to be taught social skills more explicitly because they won't necessarily pick them up just watching the faces of other kids. Maybe they won't even care whether other kids approve of them. And this reminds me, I have this memory of being in seventh grade, riding the bus to school, and I was chewing gum. And my friend, maybe not a friend, was like, why do you open your mouth like that when you chew your gum? Rude. I would like, it's still this memory where when I chew gum, I think about it. I'm like, keep your mouth closed. It's gross. It made me think of that. Oh no. Neurotypical. I don't know if I'm neurotypical, but neurotypical kids are so worried at that age, what other kids think of them. Like it's all you think about when somebody says something like that, you take it in and you're like, never again. Will I open my mouth when I chew gum? So Right. You're so sensitive to feedback, I know. Yeah. And then they say that structured social activities outside of the home, like the Boys and Girls Club, church youth groups, camps, social skills groups, or 4-H might be appropriate for kids on the spectrum more than unstructured play with kids their age. Specifically, they talk a lot about 4-H. No surprise because Temple Grandin, (laughs) I don't know if she's involved in 4-H, but that's more like agricultural, right? Yeah. I mean, they say in the book that it's traditionally associated with agriculture, but I guess it's not always like they were talking about science and stuff. So since you and I are both in, I don't know, more urban areas, I guess maybe we're not as familiar. Well, no, I'm from Fresno. So we had 4-H at my high school. (laughs) Um, There have been longitudinal studies of 4-H that show that youth who participate are four times more likely to make contributions to their community, which I wasn't sure what that means exactly, but they're twice as likely to make healthier life choices and twice as likely to participate in extracurricular science, engineering, and computer technology programs. So they just say it might be a good fit because someone on the spectrum who has interests in areas of science or robotics 
robotics, they have tracks that cover that in 4-H. So it could really be an activity where they're being social and also getting to engage in their special interests. They also suggest some non-competitive recreational activities. We kind of talked about some of these last chapter. One of our friends, Daniel, did karate and participated in social groups. Oh, wait, I have a question for you, Laura. What did you think of the way they kept encouraging ballroom dancing for these kids? Yeah. I was like, again, no, this time I was like, oh, yeah, so you noticed that dancing like does. Maybe I just heard you say since Deborah has worked with so many people with autism. Yeah, maybe she has pushed ballroom dancing and it's been really successful because clearly they've brought it up multiple times in the book. And I've never heard any of my students express an interest in ballroom dancing. I don't know. (laughs) What did you think? Well, she listed the reasons it was a hit, right? Like it's really structured. It's really good for beginners. It's a great way to socialize, which trust me, I see that for sure. But I think about all the students I've worked with in high school (laughs) and I can think maybe some of them would have been like, okay, maybe giving it a shot, but um, it just seems pretty out of left field. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Well, you don't have brothers. My brothers both had to attend cotillion. Do you know what that is? Oh, wow. Like, didn't yeah, like so they had to learn, they had to learn how to dance and just proper etiquette at like a really formal function. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's, it's so weird that they have all these middle school and high school boys. My mom spared my sister and I, we didn't have to learn how to do that. But uh, my poor brothers had to go to cotillion every week for a while. Some people, like Temple, may never have the urge to date or even experience a crush, and they will find life fulfilling without marriage, children, or a committed partner. And you know what this made me think of is we have these expectations for kids and for other people that are based on our own experiences and what is fulfilling to us, but it's like I'm someone who has chosen not to have kids. It's not like I'm this wacky person living an alternative lifestyle. But you know, sometimes I do feel like people have all the like, why? (laughs) Why not? Don't you want to experience the joy that I have? And, you know, different strokes for different folks, like some, some of our kids aren't going to necessarily want that. And you have to kind of be accepting of that, I think. And then some really are. We've watched love on the spectrum. We know that that really is a big goal for a lot of kids on the spectrum. Yeah, I think I would just believe what they tell you about that. And if they express that they want to date, support it and try your best and try to teach them about safety and good communication and choosing the right person and stuff like that. But as far as if they say like, I don't think I ever want a partner, I definitely wouldn't push it. Yeah. Oh, so they say people on the spectrum often find it easier to date people who are also on the spectrum or on the edge of the spectrum or from another culture. Once again, we're hearing that, Mm. which we know now. (laughs) You learned that. (laughs) And then they share stories from Marina and Sarah because they are both married and how they met their husbands. They both met them at work and you know, just kind of built a friendship and then moved to dating and a relationship. And I really like how it just seemed so straightforward. They found someone they'd liked and started spending time together and they ended up 
dating and getting married, it seems like there were no games played and just a lot of honesty. And it was a really refreshing take on dating. Yeah, common interests. And I like that they met at work. So you know that they like the same things. And yeah, both women said that their advice for other people who do want to date and build relationships just to be really self aware, have a lot of self acceptance, and that having shared interests and activities are really important. Sarah gave some advice saying that getting to know someone requires a lot of patience in discussions, which I thought was really sweet. Just, you know, that you can't talk the whole time. You sometimes have to wait for their response. And then Marina also gave advice that was really beautiful. She said, if you love and appreciate yourself, others will be able to witness the best of you and are more likely to mirror your feelings. Do not be afraid to take chances. So just giving someone a call, attending the party or event, or enrolling into that class. You have to give people opportunities to get to know you. Make yourself known by being present. Which was, I just loved that. Beautiful. Inspiring. (laughs) Yeah. And then lastly, they say that volunteering has really positive benefits for teens beyond just the fact that they're helping people. So one study showed that teens who volunteered reported increased awareness of themselves and others in addition to the new skills they learned. And parents have reported that their children were more willing to make decisions after being volunteers. So if you can find an opportunity to volunteer that would work for your kid, that would be great. Yeah. So... That's it for chapter seven. And now we'll just go through what we liked about this book, what we're taking away from it and how we're going to use it in our speech therapy practice. I wanted to take some a little time to acknowledge all those amazing people that were in the book. We got so many really unique and interesting stories about teens and young adults on the spectrum who have really been able to lead meaningful, successful, independent lives and gave so many examples of the times they struggled and how they were able to get past the obstacles. And it was just really interesting to read all of their stories. And then my biggest takeaway from reading this book is that even in elementary school, we can be helping parents to prepare for this transition into adulthood and addressing the really critical skills that their kids will need that can often be overlooked, especially if our focus is so much on academics and then on social skills, these teaching these social skills in kind of contrived environments that aren't necessarily going to generalize, where really the best way for kids to be learning social skills is to maybe be out volunteering or working some type of job in their neighborhood, something like that. They don't necessarily need to be interacting with kids their own age. Maybe they just need to be socializing with other adults or... Yeah, I, I, don't know. I agree. I mean... I think that there are gems and you can look if you work with elementary population, middle school or high school or adults, there are different ways to view that information. And that was one of the big takeaways for me was thinking about our role as SLPs and ways we can be encouraging parents to sort of give their own gentle pushes. So in ways we're sort of limited with what we can do in the speech room. But, you know, we see the parents at least once a year at the annual IEP And I think that's a really good opportunity to just sort of say, hey, is there any kind of community involvement you've been thinking about? Or what does Johnny do at home when you guys have downtime? Does he play a lot of video games? Maybe if that's a growing issue, you can kind of bring that up. But it's sort of about, I think, parents sometimes become really overwhelmed by just surviving day to day, especially when you have a kid who has, you know, different needs from a neurotypical kid. And 
I think that just gentle suggestions, like maybe we give our own gentle pushes as SLPs to parents so that they can give their own gentle push to the child, you know? Yeah. And that can be a fine line to walk when you're really encroaching on their parenting skills. But just if you have this information in your back pocket where you can let them know how much their habits at home impact their performance at school, their behavior, their social skills. And you can be helping parents to set their kids up to be the best version of themselves that they can be. Yeah. Another big thing I took from this book, which I also took from Whole Brain Child, is especially when kids have a lot of negative self-talk and get kind of down on themselves, just helping them to see the bigger picture, focus on not just negative thoughts, but Adapting a a more positive mindset, even when they're really young, helping them overcome problems, find solutions to issues that they're having will help them be prepared for when they face obstacles later in life. Absolutely. I think another big takeaway for me was that chapter about the video games. Like, I feel like I still cannot get over so many of those stats. Just it was making me connect so many things about these kids who I have known personally throughout the years who played so many video games. And I'm just going like, wow, that behavior and that behavior. And they're, you know, just I don't know, I felt really empowered by that chapter to bring up concerns to parents. And I definitely will be utilizing, Laura, your handout about sleep hygiene so we could give that to parents and they could realize they have a role and in a way, like without being too preachy or responsibility, making sure that their child's getting a full night's sleep and that will have a great trickle down effect to how much they get out of classroom instruction and their time in speech and with other specialists. So I don't know. I just... I had no idea that problem was as big and out of control as it is. And it really made me rethink even my own child's screen time and how we structure that in my home. Yeah, it was really eye-opening. All right. So that is it for the loving push. We hope that you were able to get a lot of information from this book and that moving forward, it will help you when you're working with kids on the autism spectrum, even in the younger years, kindergarten, elementary school, but especially for those of you that are in middle school and high school and beyond. Our next book that we'll be reading in the month of March is Smart But Scattered by Peg Dawson and Richard Guare. And we are really excited to read this book. Yeah, I'm excited. I think there's going to be tons of great information in there for all of our kiddos who struggle with executive functioning and have diagnosis of ADHD and ADD. And I think we're going to get into it. Hopefully, there's going to be lots of great practical takeaways. Yes, me too. I'm so excited for this book. Me too. All right. We will see you in March. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the slpbookclub. 